after all the storytelling is done, it's time to talk with the people that made it happen. Welcome to Behind the White Scarves. Welcome, everybody, to Behind the White Scarves Panther Soul Edition. We've done several interviews by this point. In the past, we were only doing solo interviews back when we were first starting out. And then once we started taking over the after-show, so to speak, wrap-up interviews and questions with creators and cast... The first time we did that was officially with Stone well, Spring Maidens. Yeah, we did. Our sort of prototype episode was Uncivil Outlaw. Uh, that was I mean, before we even started the podcast, but we did. The well, no. official one was Stone Spring Maidens. Uncivil Outlaw, we had started the podcast at that point because it was the end of the Uncivil Outlaw audio drama, which was the end of 2020. The beta, right. the beta was when Alex asked us to do something for Steamheart, which was end of 2019 oh my so God, that's so long ago you're right <laughs> mm-hmm. right because 2020 took 84 years mm. um, <sighs> and counting yeah exactly we're still um, there yeah it's like the worst episode of groundhog day <laughs> <laughs> so it, we should probably introduce some of these other voices you're hearing yes absolutely this was originally supposed to be quote-unquote the villains podcast first of all we have Maya Cerise, the voice of the enigmatic and deadly Morg. Hello there. Following that, we have Theo Lee, playing the radiant but troubled star dancer, who is both protagonist and antagonist. Hello. And then we have, I don't quite know how to characterize him, but he's very cultured. Foppish. He, he, he seems exactly like the kind of villain that would be in an Indiana Jones movie, or you know, uh, behind uh, uh, or on on the flagship of one of the star destroyers in Star Wars, we have James Bachelor playing Sir Dashington. Hello, you're just being you're just being nice because I'm not as deadly as either of these two. <laughs> well, no, because Sir Dashington doesn't do the bad things himself. He has he has people for that, or he has cats for that, really. But yes, this is. This was also going to be uh, different because even longer ago, in 2015, when Tiger's Eye originally came out, a bunch of you weren't a part of the uh, of the recording cast at all. Toby, were you even listening to New Century back when uh, uh, Tiger's Eye first came out? Or I think you said that Princess Thieves... Princess was Thieves was where I jumped on. Mm. I had heard excerpts of... Tiger's Eye, I think that was the one that kind of spilled over when I was aware of it, but not following it. Then Princess Thieves happened, and uh, I've been on board ever since. Mm-hmm. Right. So my beginning question was, as people whose only experience with Rama previously was reading it or listening to the Tiger's Eye audio drama, how did it feel to finally take part as characters in this world of cats. 
It was the cat's pajamas. <laughs> Get out of our cool. Meow. <laughs> okay. This was inevitable. Let's just get all the cat puns out of the way now, shall we? It was perfect. Of course, yes, right. I asked oh, no, there's a pressure. Cat... There's a pressure to come up with a cat pun, and I can't. Oh <laughs> no! It was. It was great. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, there it is. Oh, yes, we God. got it. You're really making me feel the pain of these jokes. I'm really feeling it. <laughs> oh, God right. damn it, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody um, has to remain the sane one around here, so I will refrain from puns. We For will now. stop it right now. <laughs> yeah. Not so funny meow, is it? <laughs> this is going to be a long interview. <laughs> that takes a good we'll be, longer than the episode. At this rate, we're going to be here for ages. <laughs> stop! I'm trying to hydrate my throat. <laughs> we have lost all of our listeners inside the opening few minutes I mean, i'm here for it <laughs> if they're not aware that we redo horrible puns excuse me if they're not aware that toby does horrible puns <laughs> then i don't think that they've been listening that long uh, yeah what that's, are we even doing here <laughs> yeah that's fair continue with the catawall of puns oh boy okay. i think we could boil it down to everybody wants to be a cat so that <clears throat> That's a, that's a chapter title in the book. Yeah. Um, Great choice. And I think it was like right around the time that someone was discussing, is that Oliver's company that that, that song comes from? No, the Aristocats. The right? Aristocats. Mm. Okay. Mm. Right. The they Aristocats. Were, they were discussing the Aristocats on the Discord. And that's the reason why I feel that one of the chapters was renamed to be that song specifically. You've already seen the questions that you have in front of you. And I can't deny the compelling gravity of like wanting to create your own persona just being as someone that was like waiting for the next cat book to come out i was already aware of the internal pressure that alex himself was feeling on trying to make something that stands equally to tiger's eye in the minds of his previous audience theo you first came on board you were you were a fan and a listener but you were first came on board as Gwendolyn in The Princess Thieves. Right. And Maya, you were just a contributor on uh, Stone Spring Maidens because of your behind-the-scenes Hollywood knowledge for a very long time for School of Movies. So, um, but I remember in particular, Maya, asking you about once you had made the roles of Merlane and Catherine Holloway, your own, I'd asked you at the time, what would you want to try next as a way to uh, spread your wings and act out new characters? I knew a little bit of the backstory here where you and Sharon were auditioning for both the roles of Mm -hmm. Commodore, Shrike, and Mog. Yeah. I don't remember from our interview. I've been really listening to a lot of our old stuff in preparation, but I don't remember from our interview if trying to play a villain was on, like, your bucket list of, like, things you'd like to try. Yeah, uh, careful what you ask for (laughs) (laughs) is the moral of this story. I'm getting a sense that you freaked yourself out as much as you did everyone else. We'll get to that. (laughs) But... 
in the before times when you're just auditioning for the role and Alex was like listening to different takes, do you remember what clinched it one way or the other in terms of you being a better fit for Mog or Sharon being a better fit for Shrike? Yeah, I I can't, obviously I can't speak for Alex specifically, mm -hmm. but I think with Shrike, Alex wanted a very specific accent for that uh, character. And mm. I think just in terms of, I'm not as familiar with what he was asking for as Sharon was, she was able to nail it down a little bit better. In In my opinion, what probably happened was he had somebody that was able to embody the character, the you know the the accent, everything he was asking for. And on the other side, I think I had a better handle on what Mog was. And like mm. I understood who she was, and I had a better background for what she was all about, which we'll I'll definitely get into more later. Mm. But I think in terms of what clinched it, Honestly, is like, well, do, do I even remember what my Shrike sounded like? Not really, because the bottom line is it was not as good as Sharon. So mm, okay. <laughs> that was that was what it came down to. Now, that was one of the things I was curious about, whether he was going for a vibe or whether he was going for a sound. Probably both. And mm. I think, you know, it just turned out that I was better at the one vibe. Sharon was better at the other one. And she mm -hmm. could do the the accent that he was after mm. as well. Mm. Did it take you a while to sort of uh, workshopping it with Alex to process what like the final voice or even voices of Maug would end up as? Or did you feel like you sort of had a pretty good idea early on in the process of developing the character's voice? It changed a little bit as we went along, but my first read of Mog in that very first audition was pretty much what I stuck with the wow. whole way through. And, you know, there were variations here and there. And again, we'll we'll get into it a little bit mm -hmm. later with like the different editing choices that were made and whatnot and, and how I tried to play to that. But it didn't change a whole lot from that very first read. As you can see from the list, we're going to dig deep with each of you for some character specifics. But Toby included a really good question that we should ask first. As per what Alex is doing now, he's writing the book first and then doing mm. all of the audio drama work. So did any of you have a chance to read through the book before it came to your recording sessions? And if not, how much of the broader narrative were you made aware of as a part of the direction you were giving for your various characters? So... I've actually been quite lucky. I think I've read every New Century book before it's been released since Steamheart. I think Steamheart oh. onwards, Alex. Alex very kindly sends me these um, kind of for feedback and maybe kind of a little bit of proofing, but I think he's got other people properly for that. It's just kind of, you know, what are your thoughts, you know, any bits that work, any bit, just to kind of get an early idea of how audiences are going to enjoy it. Um, so I've been very lucky. He sent me... Yeah, from Steamheart onwards, I've had every single book early. Um, usually, they arrive around Christmas, so it's not Christmas without a new New Century novel to read. <laughs> so, no, I, I did get this one ahead, and, and I, I seem to re remember when he sent me this one, is like, the Sedashington character is the one I imagine you playing if you're up for it. And kind of, so reading through it, like, right, okay, I'm getting an idea of what this guy's about. And, yeah, so, like, I, I've... I've been following the, the series pretty damn closely over the years. Well, great. That's going to be 
very important that, that you've already begun to answer some of the questions as to learning more about your role in all this. I don't want to get too far off track. I'll get to this in a little bit. Maya and uh, Theo. I read the book, uh, and then because of how my brain works, I kind of forgot everything. (laughs) (laughs) So as I'm recording, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember this part. It was cool. I'm the weirdo who who has infinite brain storage for things like the list of Transformers names. I mean, you got to have priorities. Yeah, everything else is like, I don't even remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. So, yeah, Yeah. I did read it, but, you know, sometimes the information just doesn't take. In in some ways, that feels like that would kind of result in the performance being a certain amount of authentic in the sense of it feeling fresh to you and the character. Because I'm not an actor myself, I am always fascinated by how much each person who approaches the different roles will approach it with a sense of being in the moment, but having enough perspective with maybe where they want to take, you know, if the performance starts here and you know it ends there you sort of don't want to overshoot it before you get uh this i'm using sort of hand gestures in an audio medium so yeah. <laughs> i'm already off to a great start but um yeah no i i think that that sounds like that would be a fun way to have enough of the context without feeling like you're getting bogged down in it yes and because this is an audio medium i will answer in a dance Yeah, oh, wow, I, that was a very insightful answer we just received. Thank you. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> it's not not to say that I didn't, you know, the book wasn't memorable. It's just my brain just sort of files things in the back. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, it, yeah, it's like reading through the book and then finishing the book and then reading through the script and actually doing the voice acting. I'm kind of going through the scene with the character just putting myself in their shoes or paws or what have you. And uh, yeah, it, it kind of, it kind of puts me in the moment, as you said. I also read the book before doing any of the sessions, but I, I think kind of like Theo, it had been a quite some time between reading the novel version and doing the actual recording of it. So there were, like the big picture things I kind of kept in my head, but there were a lot of details that I'd forgotten about and were kind of shockingly reminded of when I went to do some of the recordings. So yes, I did. And it was helpful. It was helpful to get a, a framework and it definitely puts you in the world and, and the setting. It helps with that kind of background stuff. But there were quite a few details that kind of just 
over time had forgotten about. My first medium was books, so I tend to do better with books than I do with any other medium for various reasons. But I read it like literally the day it came out. I, I, I read like two thirds of it. I think I went to sleep at some point and then I read the rest of it. And I was just thinking to myself, I was already sucked into some of these cinematic moments just based on the words alone. And I was thinking to myself, my God, when they finally voice act all of this stuff and put in all of the music in the background, this is going to be fucking amazing. And it absolutely was. Mm. Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know Eckhart was show, making a cameo in this interview. You never know when he'll make an appearance. <laughs> Theo, I don't yes. know, but I suspect that Star Dancer was written specifically with you in mind. It's also kind of a big event for you as you finally get to play a character that is non-binary like you. So I've got a bunch of questions about Star Dancer some of which the non-binary stuff uh, figures into it. How does your lived experience, how did that inform on playing Star Dancer? And does that experience feel at all similar to what they went through? Kind of. See, I don't know if Alex planned Star to be NB from the get-go, but he did approach me before everything and ask me about, you know, what my experience being non-binary was and I think I realized I was that I didn't really fit with either end of the spectrum mm-hmm. uh like really early on I just kind of had this vibe going on and I was just unconsciously doing it it's like mm-hmm. kids in I remember specific moments in junior high kids would come up to me strangers just 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 random kids I didn't even know would come up to me and say are you a boy or a girl were you living in a uh school of entirely populated by professor oaks <laughs> probably yeah, maybe i don't know Oof. but yeah I, re- I remember being really irritated with the question like what does it matter mm. you know I, I've, I've always had the short hair it's always been i've always been much more a practical dresser than dressing for you know oh i want to be pretty and girly or i want to be you know like sharp and masculine or whatever and I don't know, I just I just guess I was always doing it before I knew it was a thing. Mm. Same way with being asexual. It's like, I oh, that has a word. So ace that she doesn't understand the question and wishes everyone would just stop asking. It's just this sort of unconscious thing that I've always been doing. Sometimes I can go more feminine, but most of the time I feel sort of masculine, so I'm a little bit more fluid. Uh, than just straight neutral um, in the down the down the middle or whatever. Uh, I don't know. It's it's just sort of like I've been doing this, so it felt natural to sort of bring that to star. Mm. And and I I do like how the narrative doesn't make a big deal out of it. Mm. Like as as soon as it's established, neither she nor he, but are they okay? It's, it's, it's the same as saying, oh, you've got blue eyes or you've mm. got gray hair or whatever. I, I mean, and <laughs> I, keeping in mind that the voice of Mog is listening to everything that we're saying right now. <laughs> Oof. 
our heroes accept that pretty quickly. Colo accepts it. I'm not sure that it even occurs to Beatrix to ask the question, but it is intriguing at one point how Mog says, yes, I accept that about you, but not everybody will. And there's this vibe to the way she says it mm -hmm. and surrounding narrative where it's like, yeah. I don't... I don't actually accept it, but I love you anyway. And that kind of the way that people put it about like love the sinner, not the sin. Oh wow! Is it that's yeah? That's are you a sharpshooter? Because that is one hundred percent on target. Mm -hmm. I, I've I've gotten flack. Cause I I consider myself a Christian. Mm. I am unchurched, as they put it, because most of the churches in my immediate driving range are of the love the sinner, hate the sin kind of thing. And it's very patronizing. It's mm. very condescending. And there's this thick layer of shame just running underneath it. And you're just waiting for that to erode the surface and the sinkhole falls through. And that's that's been my religious experience. Uh, so, yeah, Mog tapping into that that river of shame and just sort of not exactly riding it, but sort of letting it trickle through. Mm. And that's what traps Star, is that sense of shame. And Mog sort of very quietly, very insidiously lets that weed grow instead of plucking it out like should be done. The implication at some point, my love for you and my acceptance of your lived experience is conditional on you doing exactly what I say. Exactly, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, a, it's as if Mauga is the source of both the sense of shame and saying, oh, but, you know, it's okay because I accept you. And it's like, well, hang on. Like, you, I didn't realize that this was something that needed to be accepted. Yeah. I just thought that this was me. You're the one who's introducing the sense that it's something that is in question. Mm -hmm. But that is a exhausting tension yeah, and, and alex came to me about that too it's like well, how how would mog ensnare someone like star and i said well she doesn't even have to tell the truth it just has to sound true enough mm. like mm. Said, I, I, oh yes I, I accept you being what you are but you know the the tigers that you came from they i don't think they would and mm. it's just that little seed of doubt all, all she has to do is nurture that mm -hmm. yeah and she doesn't even have to elaborate on it. She doesn't even have to be specific. All Star has to do is wonder, what if Mog is right? And it's 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 a trap. And I, I see it a lot in, in real life, and I've had to deal with it a lot in my own experiences. It's insidious what Mog does, and it's, it's very believable that Star would fall into that trap. Planting the seed of doubt. I just watched Tangled last night, and that's going to come up later. Um, Mother knows best. Listen to your mother. <laughs> uh, moving on to the uh, next part of the questions. Uh, for the duration of the text, we find ourselves intimidated by Stardancer's abilities and their allegiance to Maug or Morg. I think I flipped off on how I pronounce that. He keeps saying it's pronounced like the word Morg where you keep bodies, Morg. but okay, I keep yeah. having a hard time remembering that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we didn't have this problem when we were reading the book. Now we have the actual audio drama. We have no excuse, Greg. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but 
but we're also rooting for Stardancer to break away from Morg's influence, even as we are intimidated by what they are capable of and who they are being ensnared by. So my question is, how was it playing a character who continuously feels as if they are being pulled in multiple directions and they act as both a protagonist and antagonist in this book? Well, like I said, I I am a Christian. I grew up in the Baptist church and it's a Southern Baptist church to be specific. So you can imagine everything you, you, you imagine about the stereotypes, more or less true. Yeah, so I grew up just, you know, just my brain just completely swimming in that doctrine. And it took me seeing the the church leaders being fallible human beings and making very bad decisions and declarations about things that didn't mesh. It did not feel right. It didn't feel Christ-like. It didn't feel compassionate or merciful the way I'd been taught. That's when I, I sort of... I, I had to peek my head above the surface and say, what's, what's going on here? And start mm-hmm. thinking critically about my faith and what, what I needed to do. And that's with star. It's like when you're, when you're in a cult, which is what it is, it's a cult. It's all about thought control. Mm-hmm. Thought control is a major component of a cult. And that's, that's why many organized religions are cults. I find myself fascinated with cults in general because I wouldn't consider the Baptist church to be a cult per se, but it is, it does have, you know, elements of thought control, behavior control, information control, mm. and that's, that's all, it, Mog hit all the check marks. Yeah, so, I, I would say that they're reading from the same rule book as mm-hmm. cults, but the reality is that the cults are kind of reading the rule book that was more or less set by all of these larger and successful versions of it. I've I figured out that there's like two types of cult leader. One that knows that they're pulling a scam, and they're just they're just saying what they need to say in order to stay in power and keep the money and and sex and whatever going. And then there's a second kind, which is much more dangerous, is the one who believes their own. They're they're drinking the Kool Aid too, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. And Mog is the second type, and she can back it up, which is even worse. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, like like Star. When they're in the cult, it's hard to see outside. But then Colo comes back into the picture, and it's a glimpse of the outside, yeah. which is the last thing a cult leader wants. Mm. It's a glimpse of contradictions and other ways of thinking and other ways of being and how it's not actually wicked and terrible and mm. not, you know, oh, they're, they're, they're evil people. Stay inside. Mother knows best, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's seeing the contradictions and seeing how the leader is wrong that mm. starts to break the shell and let and, the light in. And it's specifically that Kolo was able to get away because of a choice that Star made at the point where he broke away. So mm-hmm. it's not only evidence that Kolo broke away and has managed to live and be himself and everything that an outside life would indicate, it's that Star has the active agency to make that happen that his resurfacing presents. So, Yeah, Colo's very existence is a huge, bold-faced lie, contrary to what Mog is telling her little flock. So seeing that, it sheds light on the lie. 
like I said, that's the last thing Imwag wants. As we get into over the course of the story, this also figures a, a little bit into why Stardancer looks at the cleansing fire in the Sumerian temple and thinks to herself, I devoted too much of myself to being Mog's right hand. I can't possibly go into that and believe that I'm still good at the end. She needs the redemption arc first because she's only just begun to break away from that influence. When you were mentioning cults, it made me think of something I specifically heard recently in regards to cult mentality, or rather the, the heads of cults knowing how to use disorganized attachment. It happens most often regards to parent, actual parent and child, where the parent's consistent failure to respond appropriately to their child's distress means that they don't necessarily, the, the place where the good feelings come from, the, 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 the caring and the empathy, and the place where the horrible stuff comes from, being yelled at or being mistreated, they come from the same place and the child isn't able to determine what causes good and what causes bad. But because they are also the only source of the good feeling, that means that they accept all of the punishment as well, because where else are they going to go, as you were just saying? Yeah. And there, there's also a thing, is I hate to compare people to rats, but there's this thing where in experimenting with behavior in rats, if you reward them for good things, they do the good things. If you punish them for bad things, they stop doing the bad things. But if you reward and punish them at random mm. for, for no stimulus, no input, whatever, the rats will freeze up and they won't do anything. And then they'll they'll just start to do they'll just start to be just led blindly around. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to actually see this because, as a piece of media that's more aimed at younger audiences, I wasn't for some reason making the connection. I was looking at Mog primarily as a Mother Gothel analog because I first tried watching Tangled and couldn't because she triggered me too much. But it wasn't until looking closer at how she interacts with Stardancer that I realized, oh, we got an Azula Tai Lee thing going on here too, don't we? That's a good comparison. <laughs> because Azula is blatantly abusive. Mm-hmm. Like, she she doesn't use, you know, the she uses the sweet talk, but then she turns around and she uses the back of her hand and they follow her regardless. Exactly. Because it's all fear from that point. And it's confusing at first, given how clearly malevolent Azula is. Mog can be a little subtler about it. Like, she she has, she's better at the mind games, even though we absolutely see the darkest, blackest parts of her over the course of the story. Azula just always seems to be, like, she, she her, her normal facial state is an evil smirk. And we wonder how Ty Lee can be so bouncy and adorable and happy, like, and, and following this clearly awful person's directive over the course of the show. In retrospect, portraying Azula bluntly could have something to do with the audience that The Last Airbender was catering to, but that's getting off topic, so... Bringing it back to Stardance, uh, what is successful about both these, the Panther Soul and Last Airbender, is that 
rather than Tai Li, I'm, the comparison is May because uh, huh. when specifically in one line that she says when she helps them escape from the boiling rock and then Azula asks why she's betrayed her and she says it's simple. I love Zuko more than I fear you ah. precisely <laughs> that is star dancer mm-hmm. with Kolo and these new connections mm. like that is what happens revisiting the story one of my favorite successes of Stardance's character is in almost the sort of last act, even after the action finale of the story, we are seeing Stardancer isn't immediately over Morg because how can they? It takes time. There are echoes. Even as we see the incredibly satisfying disintegration of Morgan in the story. Sorry, Maya, but that is exactly what it was. It was incredibly satisfying to just see this entity. I think the description in the audio drama was like a good four minutes or something. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to save that MP3 file for when I need it. But um, <laughs> even with that most concrete, this entity no longer exists in the world, let alone your life. Morg remains, or rather Morg's actions, Morg's impact on other people lingers, and Mm. it's just about working on that, working through it, and I thought that that was a very successful part of the narrative, so not really framed as a question, or even a talking point, just uh, well done you, well done Alex, these are great characters. Oh, yeah, we even even you know you hear you if you go and in YouTube like accounts of people who have left cults mm. and people who have left even just abusive relationships, it is so hard to get out of that mindset because by the time an abusive relationship of any kind reaches that point, those are well worn paths mm-hmm. in your head, and it's so easy to take that well worn path again. Because it's you've done it so many times before, and you have to you stop and go. No, I don't do that anymore. Change course. Like I find myself having to catch myself on things that I was was you know just pounded into me at a young age because they they're they're unhelpful, uh, maybe even a little toxic. And you know, I, I'm doing a pretty good job of catching myself on these things these days. But it's it's been a while since mm-hmm. you know. That happens with everybody. That happens regardless of intent. Like, you can't always control how somebody else is going to interpret what you say and do, Mm -hmm. uh, especially since you can't see inside their head. And sometimes, as the saying goes, the path to hell is lined with good intentions. Sometimes your good intentions will lead to unexpected and bad consequences for someone else it's worse when the intent is absolutely there that's why it's so easy to go back like even Mm -hmm. if you go even if you leave it is so easy to be persuaded to come back that's Mm -hmm. why you see people going back to abusive partners going back to to bad organizations and you know communities they they made that their world for such a long time and it's it's hard to get out Mm mm-hmm but I think with Mog gone for for real for goodsies, uh, it'll be a little easier. I'm not saying easy, but a little easier than if she were still hanging around for mm-hmm. Star to 
make that journey to forge a new path? What we really need then as a communal destination is a pit of truth fire that uh, anyone who's exiting a toxic relationship just chuck them into the truth fire. There we go. Like, you're fine. You're good. I mean, it, de- <laughs> it depends on, as someone rightly points out in the novel, we are always the worst judge of ourselves. And so therefore, even if we haven't necessarily done anything wrong, if we've been trained by the evil person to believe we've done something wrong, then we would end up doing harm to ourselves anyway. Here, Here's a big question. Mm-hmm. We find out at the end of Panthersol that Stardancer is Prow's missing cub, once named Carol. Spoilers, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) This is after the audio drama. We can't control if they haven't listened to it ahead of time. Uh, But my question was, Theo, did you know in advance of even reading the book that you were going to voice someone with that narrative weight? Or did you find out as a result of reading the book with everyone else? Yeah, I I found it. Alex told me Mm. before, before I read the book even. So, so I've, I've been sitting on that little nugget. <laughs> Just at, every time someone talks about star or the discord, I'm like, <laughs> I know something you don't know. I was reveling the lead up to the final chapter coming out on the, mm-hmm. uh, because who was it on the discord who was saying, I think I figured something out about star dancer but i'm gonna hold off on it until next week and i was just like (laughs) (laughs) it might have been bonsai or self i forget who was reading along with or who was commenting along with us as the last few chapters came out it was in fact discord user bonsai tree also known as timu's hellas hayo from the 15 dollars sponsor list that posted about the creeping suspicion about the carol connection they were right of course but we've known Banzai has had an eye and ear for these things, given they were also the one to solve the riddle of the ghost of Charlotte back in Secret Rooms. Alex knows how to end stories. He, <laughs> he's said this uh, himself uh, multiple times, but damn it if he doesn't keep proving that to be true. Well, so I have a follow-up to this, which only occurred to me a couple of hours ago as I was mentally preparing for this. And obviously, Theo, you're not in control, but... As it was a component of Panther Soul itself, I find myself wondering, Colo had, ostensibly, a name when he was still in the Yamaya Panther tribe. Maul gives him a new name, Firebrand, and after he successfully leaves the cult, he picks a new name for himself, which is ironically very connected without him knowing it to his previous life. Stardancer is a great name, but I find myself wondering if Star might choose to leave that name behind, not necessarily go back to Carol, but like pick a new name for themselves as they start on their new journey. Do you have feelings about that? It wouldn't surprise me if they choose a new name or if they continue to be Star Dancer or some aspect of that. Choosing a name is, is a very personal thing like for identity, like my legal name is not Theo Lee. Mm. Uh, it's 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 a it's a Dutch monstrosity that I will not attempt to inflict on you. But I chose Theo uh, in honor of my grandmother, whose name was Theo. She was one of the most important people in my life. So that's she she informs a lot of my character 
when I was forming who I was. So that that was important to me. And mm-hmm. Lee being my a family name that's been tossed around to everybody in my dad's side of the family. It took me a while to arrive at that. But once I did, it felt right. It clicked. And something may click for Star in the future. And it wouldn't surprise me. I've got it. Going off the last airbender again, they should go for Twinkle Toes. It is today. I am Twinkle Toes. <laughs> <laughs> On the subject of the final reveal, were there any aspects of uh, Maureen's performance as Frau that you consciously chose to emulate in order to make a subtle connection between Frau and Stardancer? Yeah, Maureen's performance as Frau, she has a very sort of even measured cadence. I noticed that my mother and I speak a lot alike, like even in our vocal inflections, people Mm. have trouble telling us apart on the phone. Wow, really? Yeah, because our voices are just so similar. I don't know how I wound up as an alto and she's a soprano. But yeah, it's like I would answer the phone back in the, the ancient times of the landlines and my friends would start talking to her as if she were me. And her friends would talk to me as if I were her. So we were indistinguishable. So that sort of informed me that Star as Carol would have picked up those mannerisms from before they were born. Because Mm. we hear things in the womb. And they found out even babies have accents in their their babbling because because of what they've heard and how our brains just absorb everything. And so Star, it makes sense for Star to sound a lot like Hral. The point of connection between the little we see of Star as Carol in Tiger's Eye is that you hear Hral describe Carol as dancing, and Hral says that Carol is so beautiful as they dance before Carol disappears. And that was something that after the reveal at the end, I thought, oh, of course, like that, like that makes so much sense. So it feels as if this maybe Morg saw this aptitude in a star in them and then decided to twist that into serving her purposes. But even though it's something that is used as a tool for Morg's benefit, I think that you see so much that Star uses the dance to communicate as well. So you're absolutely right that there is something in Star that does feel like a connection that even as deep into Morg's bullshit that Morg has put Stardancer in, that part of Stardancer remains, that part endures. It is very difficult to erase a like early childhood imprinting mm. on someone mm-hmm. like to some degree everyone retains all that because of how our brains work and how how we absorb information at that early age it made sense to to have star mm. still hang on to that aspect of themselves despite everything it feels like you've already answered the next question that we have on the list that question being an inquiry into how Theo experienced being non-binary, as well as how that influenced Stardancer. The way you described your personal experience, and honestly thinking back on the way Star describes themselves in the story, seems to suggest that uh, non-binary to you means a harmonized blend of masculine and feminine that is kind of its own thing. Does that sound accurate? 
Yeah, because especially when they're dancing, Star tells a story and they'll take on masculine and feminine feminine traits as needed to use their ability. Mm. I do that sometimes. So, like the last time I had to be super feminine was at my brother's wedding. Mm. I was a bridesmaid with the dress and all that entails. And mm. oh god, the heels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't like to go, you know, way feminine or way masculine. I'm much more mm-hmm. in the middle. Mm-hmm. But I can if the situation calls for it. A dancer has to be flexible in mm-hmm. in all ways. That just made sense to me. It just I didn't even really consciously think about it. Most of the roles you've played in the past were female-coded. I don't think that I... If I'd been told that you were non-binary prior to... Stone Spring Maidens come out. I don't think I, I think that detail just like fell out of my ear and on the carpet at some point. <laughs> um, but I'm curious, would you ever want to try a purely masculine role voicing a character in New Century? Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be fun. I'm thinking it might be like a like a prepubescent boy because I do have a very high girly voice sometimes. I, I think I could try like a like a kid, you know, like a trousers role, as it, as it were. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I realized that I'm kind of holding back. It was like, oh, God, okay, we're going to finally talk about Bog. I, I wanted to come to a, a, a proper ending uh, before moving on. Do you have any other thoughts that you wanted to share about the experience of performing Star Dancer? For, like, in particular, that one scene where... <sighs> Star is having to give Noon over to Mother. That is fairly difficult for the audience itself to listen to, let alone for Star to experience. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't... That... This is when... I think Star is, like, not starting to question, but starting to entertain the idea of questioning. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it, it feels wrong, but they don't know why. Mm-hmm. It takes the whole rest of the story for them to figure out, oh, I've done terrible things. And it's hard to pin that all on Mog because I was just following orders kind of thing. It doesn't float entirely. I mean, so, yeah, you can you can explain the manipulation and the abuse, but at the end of the day, Star is going to have to live with having done all that. That's something that future stories are going to have to have them wrestle with, and it's mm-hmm. going to be fun. <laughs> Asterisk, not fun at all. Mm-hmm. If there's one thing that I appreciate about Star Dancer as a character, and again, this sort of brings it back to Ty Lee a little bit, yeah, the overall reality of the cult is not a good thing, and so therefore we're glad that that is white from the face of the earth. But there was periods during that where it seemed like Star was able to carve out some level of happiness for themselves. And it's good that there are positive experiences and there is a positive self-image for Star to build off of going forward, that they don't have to start from the bottom, so to speak. The reason most cults are just so insidious is that there are positive aspects to it. Mm. You have community, you have companionship, you have reassurance that you're doing the right thing, quote unquote. 
And it, it is hard to break away from that because the, the cult, especially the leader and the, the, the people in power, they give you love. It may not come from a genuine place. It may be very poisonous love, but it feels right at the mm-hmm. time. That's, that's going to be something else that Star is going to have to unpack. If I could add something to that real quick. A very smart person once said that nobody ever joins a cult. They join mm. a good thing. Mm. It mm. always starts out as a good thing. They join a self-help group. They join some kind of spiritual enlightenment, you know, a professional development. It starts out as something totally different. I have no doubt in my mind that if Mog came up to Star Dancer and was like, hey, I'm going to have you feed me your comrades while they're still living and breathing. And you are now going to have to live with the consequences of that. They probably would have said no. No, mm. thank you. I will seek a family <laughs> elsewhere. Thanks. That was that was how Morg did things in the first couple of centuries. Didn't have a lot of success, it right? It didn't they work as well. It. Yeah. <laughs> They Just knocking on cat stores says, have, have you heard the good word of feeding me your soul? <laughs> Why are you okay. shutting the door? Are they going to call it the Book of Meowman? <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. The, the, I apologize for that one. No, no, that no, one it's... hurt my brain. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so He's sorry. Broke Theo. <laughs> oh no. R.I.P. Theo Lee, 1979 to 2012. I know. Well, with Theo dead, I guess this is a good time to transition <laughs> to uh, the next interviewee. And... Perfect segue. Yeah. We nailed it. We did <laughs> yeah. it, everyone. <laughs> and all it took was Theo dying. Um... Oh, no. Plus, no uh, notes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Morg, it's great to have you in the studio. Hi. <laughs> oh, no. oh no no don't I pro- I'm not going to sl- do the voice I I won't I won't be able to keep it up we'll be here all day Yes yeah. I wasn't always listening week to week as uh Panther Soul was coming out I had other things on my plate but every time Mog came center stage I kept on tagging you Maya and saying you're far too good at playing this character and it kind of broke my brain a little bit <laughs> and and I'm I'm curious to find out why about... <laughs> <laughs> just why <laughs> I mean you because you said yes I feel is the answer to that question but I'm curious where the blend came from how how she grew from the text and from Alex's direction or what influences either personal or media related that you drew upon for your as I put it, interpretation of this ancient immortal creature. Yes. So, but why did I talk about this so long? So you guys may remember uh, about 50 million years ago, the year 2020, and uh, there was a, a bit of a global event that happened. I wasn't Many people the news, were. You have to remind me. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> some some stuff happened, and a lot of people were not allowed to leave their homes for one reason or another. I don't really remember why. But when I was in like the actual lockdown portion of the lockdown, I wasn't working, not a whole lot was going on. I had a lot of hours to myself and I was one of those people that fell down the rabbit hole of watching all of the cult shows. Oh God. So I have spent 
the better part of two years, two plus years, because uh, still I'm still kind of in the rabbit hole. I watched all of Scientology in the aftermath. I watched the documentary of Going Clear and read the book. I watched The Vow. I watched Wild Wild Country, The Way Down. Um, I read the book about, uh, it's called Slonum Woods Nine, which is about the Larry Ray, Sarah Lawrence College cult. I have been immersing myself in this stuff for years. So by the time Alex came to me and said, hey, what do you think of this character? I was like, you have no idea how prepared I am to do this because I know exactly who this person is. I know exactly how she operates. I know how she thinks. And I understand completely what she's all about. So when it comes to the influences, I had them all. She's a little bit Keith Raniere. She's a little bit Elron Hubbard. She's a little bit David Miscavige. She's a dash of the the way down lady. She's a little bit of um of Rajneesh. I had so many of these like cult of personalities to draw from. So honestly, I didn't even really need to look at fictional characters to flesh out Mog's character. I just had to look at real life, which is mm. kind of a a scary in and of itself. Like this is even a more frightening thing to think about is that you don't have to go to fiction. You can just look at what's happening. You can read up on the people that started Amway, for goodness sake, and you'll basically get the same thing. It all kind of feeds into the same line of thinking. And I, sorry, Theo, I am going to repeat a little bit of what you said before, but you can kind of follow Mog down this path of like, this is exactly the way a leader of a destructive cult operates all the boxes get checked and she just follows this so to the letter. I can't help but think that that was completely intentional. Like, I don't think she was written in any other way than exactly that. I actually have to ask, because you fell down this rabbit hole, did you get a chance to watch the documentaries on Fire Festival and mm -hmm. WeWork? Because... Yep. Like, I didn't know anything about Fire Festival except that it was a debacle. But when I got around to watching it, I was like, huh, this guy's a cult of personality that feels like he believes his own hype. And then yeah. I watched the WeWork thing and I was like, that's exactly the same guy. This is a guy that believes mm -hmm. his own bullshit and the entire force of his personality is creating this cult mentality where other people as long as they're inside the aegis of influence, end up believing his bullshit as well. So that was kind of uh, a bit of an eye-opening thing there. The, the, the idea yeah. that there are organizations and setups that can use some of that same psychology without necessarily <laughs> associating the, the, the word cult with it. it. It is fascinating how baked into our society that sort of thing is where you can find it just about anywhere and as i think theo even you know alluded to this before but it's not just destructive cults it's not even religious institutions alone it's multi-level marketing schemes you know it's crypto bros it's abusive relationships it's abusive parents and family members it's authoritarian figures like political figures 
fascist leaders, you can find it in almost every segment of society. It's quite quite chilling to recognize mm. just how pervasive this sort of thing is. The sad fact is that it also happens to be quite effective, especially mm. if you find people at very specific vulnerable points in their lives, which is probably how Star got involved in this whole business to begin with. In Hollywood, mm. it's Jared Leto. And it's Harvey Weinstein, yeah, too, yeah. To, be, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest. Like, we could even, you know, uh, take it that way. Directors that have this kind of, like, auteur mentality can fall into that sort of thing where everybody just wants to please them and no one wants to tell them no. Oh, God, it's Josh Whedon. Everyone is too afraid to speak up. Everyone is too afraid to lose their position or lose their job. And directors... Uh, not all of them, mm. but I would say a vast majority of them, if they want to get in good with their actors, they tend to love bomb them. For those that are not familiar with the term, I put a link in the show notes for a video on a more thorough breakdown on that topic. In brief, love bombing is when someone uses attention, affection, and adoration in order to manipulate others. If you've ever seen the trope of a producer or other Hollywood bigwig ply an actor with praise and compliments... That's an example of love bombing. And then Mm. the abuse seems normal because they've been brought in in this loving and nurturing environment to begin with. No one ever joins a cult. They join a good thing, yes. Join a good thing. Mm -hmm. There was something that Theo said, too, that I just, it made me think of the dichotomy of, like, the acceptance and the love, but also that being used against them. If you have not heard of or listened to the podcast a little bit culty i highly recommend it it's a wonderful show it's headed by two ex-members of nixium and they had mike rinder who is an ex-scientologist on their show and he had this great quote that goes the followers of the cult believe that the great man or woman or whoever is leading them loves them They worship and idolize that person and believe that person reciprocates with the same sort of love for them. When it comes right down to it, those people only love themselves. And it's entirely and utterly transactional whether the person on the other side of the relationship is going to be treated well or treated badly. I think that just that sums up Star's relationship with Mog like perfectly. And that comes through in the way that Morg's voice is performed and also constructed, because to my untrained ear, it came across uh, that Morg's voice is a combination of two overlapping vocal tracks, with each track representing a different side of Morg. Was that the actual case? Was it something where it you would do two different reads on a line in different tones in order to kind of capture that sense that Morg is at the same time as she is enveloping you in this just immense shadowy presence. She's also pouring honey into your ear and trying to make you fall in love with them. What was the process of just sort of having to read these same words but to capture both sides of it? A little bit of both. I think in some of the first reads, I was sort of playing around with different tones. And I think pouring honey into the person's ear is a good way of putting it. 
this is going to get a little crass for a second, but there were moments in some of my readings where I literally imagined that I was trying to seduce the microphone. I pretend like you're trying to fuck the microphone. And that was the voice that came out. I think Alex realized early on that there were sort of two different tones in, you know, the, the takes that I was giving him. And he was like, I already have the two things. I'm going to experiment with layering them on top of each other. So once I knew he was doing that, then I performed specifically for that purpose. I specifically mm. made sure that I had one that was kind of in a lower register, sort of that darkness kind of creeping through. And the other was the very saccharine sweet, um, think the white witch from Lion Witch in the Wardrobe. Yeah. yeah there, there has to be an in. The love still kind of has to be there, even if it's being withheld in a lot of ways and a lot of times. But mm. knowing that this is specifically what Alex was doing for the edit helped me tailor my performance for that sort of thing so that he would be able to do that pretty easily. Mm. That, having used the words make love to the microphone suddenly puts into context, like it was already part of the text, but the fact that you were trying to pull that into your performance makes me think of what I refer to as the unsex scene between Colo and Mog, and I'm just like, oh, mm -hmm. God. Would you take my daughter for your own? I do not know how to answer. I feel her paw rest upon my throat and ever so lightly squeeze. It is at once loving and petrifying. Make her your mate. Produce black and blue leopard cups. Add their strength to our family. Her paws now roam my body, and I am trapped, desperate to escape. I cannot let her feel this. She could tear my throat out in half a second if I stiffen up, and let my true feelings be known. So I press back into her willingly, giving myself over. Yes, I would love that. She continues, and I let it happen. There is definitely, I was thinking about this uh, in the hours leading up to this interview. A lot of times when you're doing any sort of character work, if you're just voice acting, stage, film, whatever, the idea is that if you try to embody the character, you'll mm. get a little bit more of an honest or a more sincere or full performance. I think trying to fully embody or fully get into a character like Mog is kind of dangerous. Mm. It's not something that it's definitely not something that I tried to do. For mm -hmm. this, and again, it was very fortunate that like most of the research, most of the character study that you would normally do for a character like this, I had basically already done mm -hmm. years before Alex asked me to do this. So having a full understanding of the character and then knowing I understand how they react to things. I know how they operate. This is not me. This is not coming from me in any way, shape or form. That full understanding of who the person was was crucial coming forth with, you know, a performance that was believable. 
Mm-hmm. And that could be scary, but also you could see where somebody could be brought into something like this and where it would be appealing. Mm. But equally important was maintaining a little bit of distance. <clears throat> there has to be some kind of separation with a character like this, or it it could mm. really end up messing up your mental health pretty it, easily. And unfortunately, mm. there are more than one uh, real world examples of what happens when people do fully embody and become these types of characters and it does eat away at their mental health. So I would not recommend trying to do that unless you are very strong, even, even somebody that does consider themselves experienced or, or strong mentally, it's not something that I think is, is Mm. a healthy thing. So it's the difference between embodying a character and channeling them. You know, mm-hmm. you you conduit, you uh, like help get the performance through, but it's not you are not them. You are just helping to convey it to its destination, and once it's there, you get to put it down. Exactly. Mm. It also depends on what kind of villain it is. Like the person that obviously comes to mind is unfortunately the late lamented Heath Ledger. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you also think of somebody else that voiced the toxic personality of Joker, Mark Hamill. And one expects that he probably had an easier time pulling it off, maybe because he'd done so many roles that were like the shining beacon of good. But also his version of Joker is a little bit more camp and less yeah. dark. He's a cartoon. So, I mm-hmm. mean, I literally a cartoon. So it is, I think that is a little bit easier to have a separation with that as opposed to this is me i'm wearing the stuff i'm in the costume i'm in the makeup when i look in the mirror i see the joker mm-hmm. i don't see heath ledger or whoever you know it's i'm not even going to get into jared leto because who the hell knows what he sees when he looks in the mirror but discussion for a different time or never never is good i don't think anyone is asking the show to do a show called we need to talk about jared leto I do think it is important to have a bit of separation between Mm -hmm. the two Mm -hmm. things. But even with that, that is exactly what I tried to play to was if it's not believable, no one's going to buy it. Mm -hmm. If it goes too far in one direction or another, you're either not going to think that she's threatening or scary enough, or she's going to be way too threatening and scary. And you say, nobody would ever stay with this person. Like, this Mm -hmm. is crazy. Like they wouldn't even get involved to begin with. So it was it was definitely a balancing act. But I think I liked what Alex ended up doing with layering the two different tones of the vocal performance. Do you think now that you've done this and like Mog is like a, a very specific depth layer to go to, would you ever want to try playing another villain character and maybe one that's a little more campy, a little bit more flamboyant? Oh yeah, for sure. I'm not opposed to to playing villains whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a lot of fun. And I believe like you know if if the whole thread from Stone Spring Maidens continues, mm-hmm. I actually will have the chance to play another villain again if Alex Bye. decides to keep me on in that role. Mm-hmm. And that it's a very different thing, you know? Uh. That character is way more grounded in reality. Mm. And <laughs> I think to go back to your Tangled analogy, she comes across to me as a little bit more Gothel, where it's like she's the mother knows best. She's the overbearing, overprotective, very controlling. (laughs) 
but it comes from a believable place. Mm. Mm. So, of course, the villain that, uh, or the character you played in Stone Spring Maidens, who will be coming back as a villain you are referring to, is obviously the person who was in the cab at the beginning, who was saying, <laughs> Don't I fuck him? Ah. I would, I would, gosh, I can't remember the name now, but yeah, I would love, I would love to bring that character back to side villain. Since you've already name dropped uh, the last airbender at one point, she's like the, she's like the Mike Cabbage's guy. <laughs> Just yeah. keep showing up. My stallions. <laughs> <laughs> Mother Gothel is the obvious go-to, but it's also like Mog has a great deal of personal power. Like, she's not just charismatic in and of itself. She has some sort of way about her that her power sort of ensnares your mind. Like, if her attention isn't on you, then you can potentially have your own mind. But the second her attention is on you, you're like, yes, I want to do... I absolutely want to be worthy of this person's love. And in the case of Hera Rubinox, her power is more intrinsic in that she is a leader of Autumn's forces. Whereas Mother Gothel's power really only lay in her ability to control this one person. Maybe a little bit the brother Stabbington, like she was able to manipulate these very simple cutthroat people <laughs> and then literally hit them over the back of the head. But I was curious at one point, I was like, oh, does she have magic apart from that? And apparently not, she just has a knife. So honestly, I think Mog is worse mm. when you when you get right down to it. Like give me Mother Gothel any day over Mog. I don't wanna I don't wanna mess with that thing. It's a similar idea, but I think the influence is where the big difference is. Like you said, mm -hmm. Gothel could maybe have influence over this one person, and it's a bit of a codependent relationship anyway. So there's that aspect of it. But Mog is just you know, she's had practice. She's had many, many decades of of working this stuff out. So she knows what to do. And mm -hmm. she knows how to kind of tweak things to weirdly uh, have it work differently for different people. Like mm. she can change and she's savvy enough to know this tactic isn't quite working with this person. I have to change quite a lot, especially with, with Leah. Mm. When she encounters Leah, it's like, oh, you're a little bit more clever. I got to change up my my usual tune a little mm -hmm. bit. And I think that the two voices helps with that because one aspect of them which complicates and makes uh, more even more of a enveloping presence is that it's not as simple as you're hearing the sweet voice and the intimidating voice. It the problem is that in each of those performances a bit like, you know, seeing the yin and the yang you can see the element of the other in it. In the sweet voice, there is always that feeling of poison in it. And in the intimidating voice, there is something almost darkly seductive about someone who is this all-powerful, who is telling you words that seem to indicate that this person needs me, that I'm important to someone who as all-powerful as this. And it's the fact that you can't just neatly cordon off these different aspects of her voice or her personality in these ways which are manageable. It's that on a dime, 
she will be able to, as you say, just flip and adjust. And part of that is Alex, like possibly sort of mixing it so one level mm -hmm. goes a little bit more or something like that. It ultimately, I think, comes down to uh, your performance that it did kind of really show that side of it. So a lot of these interviews just boil down to me finding <laughs> excuses to say, well done, well done. Uh, well, but... thank you. But also, <laughs> I think you're you're hitting on something important, too, in that, you know, especially with Star Dancer, especially with that character. And, you know, Theo mentioned this already, but there is that element of for the performance you want to show, you want the audience to believe that somebody could get tied up with a person like this. Mm. But you still, every once in a while, want to have the mask slip a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Mog is smart. And she, again, she follows the cult leader's rule book down to the letter. Star identifies as non-binary, uses they, them pronouns, and is very insistent on that. And on the surface, you would think, well, they seem pretty fine with that. They seem pretty comfortable with it. But Mog knows that that can be, in Scienti the Scientology parlance for this, it's finding the person's button. Mm. In Nixium, it was, what's their issue? This is something that can be used against them. Mm. Whenever Mog decides that Star needs to be put in her place a little bit, or they're questioning her a little bit too much, they're starting to show a little bit too much independent thought. I've got this button that I know I can push. I know that they have some doubts and some shame and maybe a little bit of self-consciousness about their identity. That's what I'm going to hit to put them back in place, to put them back in line. And in the case of Leah, Mog understands very quickly that Leah has trust issues. She doesn't mm. even have to plant the seed of doubt. She mm -mm. just has to play on the doubts Leah already has. Oh yeah, absolutely. And like, she's smart enough to see that. You you had no one before, and then you thought you had someone, and now you have no one again. Like she knows that abandonment issues, that's gonna be a big thing for Leah, and she can play on that too. It's, again, it's, it's following the rule book down to the letter. She mm. knows what buttons to push, she knows what issues to look for, one of the most insidious things about it is that I could very easily have seen, you know, much like she has the the court of Mog, mm. doing those little sessions one on one with people, and bringing in someone like Star and say, "Oh, you you were uncomfortable about your identity before. Tell me about that. Like, what was that like for you?" And you know, getting them to open up about those sorts of things for the express purpose of using it against them later. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope that whet your appetite for more, because more is coming. Like Stone String Maidens before it, we have another episode to finish off Maya, Theo, and James, followed by two episodes of Loretta, Spencer, and Maureen, after which we're going to have however many episodes it will take to ask Alex, Sharon, and Willow Shaw their side of the panther and his soul. Only after all that are we going to finish our Steam Art Retrospective, as well as a proper Beyond the Window episode, where Toby and I will finally discuss the ten assigned horror movies I've been promising. And if people like that, it may well become a future side project. To close us out, 
we start with part one of the Panther Soul blooper reel, followed by a song by Korean virtual pop group KDA that I was saving specifically for Mog. Until next time, we'll see you around the multiverse. Quiet, wheedling, and groaning with fear. Miss McNeil, I'm afraid I must decline your offer of marriage, for you see, I'm dying. Cough, then fall over dead. My God, he's dead. Senate sits a... Senate sits on a gnarled branch. Gnarly dude. She's like totally sitting up there on the gnarly branch. <clears throat> Senate sits on a gnarled branch above our head. <laughs> Here we go. Alright. Senate sits on a gnarled branch. Oh, God. We've got to get you off the street. Or by nightfall, you'll have lost so much, you're going to have... Or by nightfall, you'll have lost so much, you're going to be arrested for public indecency. Like, take a little breath in the middle. Like, she's like, oh, they'll take everything. And see the wrinkled fur. Uh, I don't want to see your old ass. That's Australian again. I don't want to see your ass. You're very s***. We've got to get you off the street. We've got to get you off the street. Or you'll be... Or by nightfall you'll have lost so much you're going to be arrested for public indecency. Enunciate one more time on that. Or by nightfall you'll have lost so much you're going to be arrested for public indecency. Or by nightfall you've... Or by nightfall you'll have lost so much you're going to be arrested for public indecency. Take you somewhere far
Till you go. 